Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Helper. Are you in search for the perfect health insurance? Well, look no farther because they are the ultimate platform that revolutionizes the way that you find, enroll, and manage your health coverage. HealthBird offers an innovative solution that is tailored just for you. They have a lightning fast search engine that you can effortlessly compare health insurance quotes in milliseconds. There's no more tedious hours of browsing endless websites or spending hours on the phone with insurance agents. They offer a user-friendly app available on iOS and Android, which puts the power of managing your health insurance right at your fingertips. So again, you know, don't let the complexity of health insurance overwhelm you. Join Helper community and experience a seamless, intuitive platform that puts you in control. So get a quote today at healthbird.com forward slash dealmakers. This episode is brought to you by Bupos. Attention entrepreneurs, are you ready to take your business aspirations to new heights? Allow me to introduce you to Bupos, the ultimate solution for finding and funding your SaaS and subscription-based business acquisitions. With Bupos, you'll experience a seamless and worry-free process. They offer flexible funding and require absolutely no personal guarantee. I mean, again, you can go there, you can explore over a thousand opportunities pre-approved for financing, ensuring that you invest in a business with true profit potential. Bupos has got you covered. Their team actually provides one-on-one advisory support to help you making informed decisions. And on Bupos, you gotta remember, they've already approved over 700 million in funding and they've written over 3,000 businesses, finance hundreds of successful business acquisitions and have an impressive 4.7 out of five stars on Trustpilot. So you should go to bupos.com forward slash dealmakers, and that is bupos as B-O-O-P-O-S dot com forward slash dealmakers. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really exciting guest. You know, we're gonna be talking, you know, quite a bit, you know, building, scaling, financing, management styles, what to think about, you know, when it comes to polishing the idea, ideation, launching, uh, also about when to bring senior executives, whether you know to do it early, to do it later. And of course, you know, going through the different financing cycles. So Without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Robert Crane. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Alejandro. I really appreciate you you having me and excited to chat. So born and raised in New Jersey. So give us a walk through memory lane, Robert. How was life growing up? Yeah, Freehold, New Jersey. You know, they're they're uh, it's in central New Jersey. A lot of people think there's only north and south, but there is there is a central New Jersey if you're if you're from it. Um, and uh, you know, middle class family, went to public school. You know, uh, first first person in my family to graduate college. Um, you know, it was a it was a great classic. You know, American uh, upbringing, if you will. So in this case, you know, for you, it sounds like business. It was something that you were excited about because you went and and ended up studying at Rutgers. So why business out of all things? 
Yeah, I, I thought that that gave me the the largest opportunity set in the future. You know, I was always interested in traveling. I traveled around a lot, sometimes by myself, you know, and when uh, other people, you know, couldn't or, or didn't have the ability to go. And, and whether that's traveling in Asia or Europe or things like that, it was just um, I always want to get out and do things and, and learn more. And uh, business seemed like a wide enough net that, um, you know, you could take those skills and, and you could really do anything with them, if you will. Now, in your case, when you uh, graduated from Rutgers, you um, definitely went into the financial service space. You did yep. Bank of New York Mellon to uh, get going, and then Guggenheim Partners and uh, Mid-Ocean Partners. So I guess, what what were some of the lessons that uh, that you learned you know, from, from being in some of those big institutions that are so successful? I would say that, you know, you're, you can make whatever story that you want come to reality is probably the, the, the thing that I would say, right? I mean, I think some things that you didn't mention in there that, that I think might be important for some folks to know. So I went, I went to a community college uh, for, for some time before I, um, I moved over to Rutgers, right? And so I didn't go to a top Ivy League school or anything, anything like that. Um, but, you know, it's just really hard work at the end of the day. Um, and when I graduated Rutgers, I worked full-time all the way through college, full-time job. Um, so I didn't have the opportunity to do internships like other people did. I didn't have the opportunity to do an internship at a financial services firm or anything like that. And so I'd say that, that, you know, all of these things like stack up against you, if you will, right? Like, how do you get the next internship if you didn't have the first one? How do you get a full-time offer if you never had an internship? And so, you know, those things were, were difficult. Um, and ultimately, I graduated Rutgers with no, um, no offer for a job and, and had to really work hard, um, you know, to get one. So, um, but again, you know, when you're, when you end up at some of these places, it's just really like, you, you could do it if you really want it. Did you actually do every single thing possible? Most people, the answer is no. You know, you could say, oh, I never got in touch with this person. It's like, okay, well, did you stand outside their front door for two weeks until you ran into them? And the answer is no, of course you didn't. Right. But well, then you didn't do everything possible. So, um, you know, I, I think that that's kind of uh, a little bit of the moral of the story, I would say in terms of, uh, you know, what you can do to get where you want to go. So then in this case, you know, uh, for you, when you graduated, you know, what was that like? What were you looking for? It was tough. I, I really didn't know what I was looking for, to be honest. I mean, I, I grew up in central New Jersey. I didn't have exposure to investment banking. I didn't even know what that was. You know, I didn't understand the different asset classes. I didn't understand, you know, the opportunities that you the careers that you could go into, you know, and, and I went to Rutgers Newark. I didn't even go to Rutgers New Brunswick. Right. So you, you weren't necessarily afforded the same like, hey, by the way, here's how the world works. And these are all the things that you could go and do. And here's how to here's the path to get into those things like that. That really wasn't there. And so you know, it was up to me to really find that out and join message boards and ask around and things. I just knew that there was a world out there that was really interesting that I didn't know enough about. Um, and so I, I definitely interviewed at places and banks uh, and, and didn't get any offers. Um, and I think I interviewed at Bridgewater and I have no idea how I got that interview, but lasted a few rounds and, and ultimately didn't get, didn't get an offer. Um, and so, you know, I had to, um, you know, focus on what, what is my entry point into that space. And ultimately, you know, I, I really, uh, you know, worked with my professors and things like that and, and career fairs and went to career fairs for schools that I, I, I didn't go to, for example. Right. Um, and ultimately got an offer for um, Bank of New York Mellon, which required me to move to Pittsburgh. You know, and I, I think the salary was like 40 something thousand dollars a year. So then so then what was it like, you know, like going through all these different, you know, firms? I mean, because I mean, you you it sounds like the one year mark, you know, was the. Uh, the one for you. I mean, you were for one year at Bank of New York, New York Mellon, then another year at Guggenheim Partners. So what what were you looking for? What, what, what were you in search for there? Yeah, so I, I just knew that, you know, in order to really 
the, the best opportunity set at that time. And I think it's changed pretty dramatically from, from when I was younger and went through that. But the best opportunity to say, you know, the, the world is your oyster, if you will, right, is to say, I'm, I want to go through a rigorous investment banking program. And I think that that would not only give me, um, you know, the rigor that's really allowed, but really just allow me to interact with people and find out things that I never would have had the opportunity to do, period, you know. And so I always knew that, you know, I had to get there somehow. And I knew I wasn't going to be able to just get a job there right out of school, right, because I didn't have an internship and all those other things. So I knew I already missed that boat. Um, and Rutgers doesn't really have, I mean, they have, they have some alumni, but they're not, you know, uh, like like NYU or Harvard or all of these other places that have, uh, you know, all of these alumni on the street that can, that can help you. Um, so it was really just saying, like, I just have to keep moving. And you can't get stuck somewhere because then you're going to get stuck there forever, for example. Right. Um, and so I knew that there were these steps that I had to take to get where I wanted to go. And, you know, Bank of New York Mellon was the first one. Guggenheim was the second one. I knew that investment banking really wasn't for me. It wasn't I didn't have a, enough control over what, what I was doing. Um, and then and then ultimately, um, you know, mid-ocean, which, um, you know, I, I learned you know, an incredible amount during my time there. So there was one moment there. One, one thing that happened with the, that involved, you know, one of your neighbors that changed everything. What happened? Yeah, so it was um, a few days before Christmas in 2016, middle of the night. I think it was like a, you know, a weekday night, like a Wednesday or something. Um, and I had a home invasion in my apartment um, in New York City. Uh, and it ended up being the uh, adult son of a neighbor across the hall. And so... Um, you know, that was a pretty uh, traumatic experience. My wife now, girlfriend at the time, was home. Um, and, you know, it's difficult because if you have to throw out your garbage in an apartment building, for example, you know, I have to, we have to walk past this person's door. You know, if you're waiting for the elevator and the door's open and they're standing there, where are you supposed to go? And so it was tough. It got to the point where my, my wife was asking me to come home, you know, to walk the dog in the middle of the day or help her throw out the garbage or escort her outside, you know. and um, you know, I think that uh, a good friend of mine, his wife is a psychiatrist. She said, you guys should go and chat with someone, you know, and I want, I want to see the best, the best provider possible. I wanted to see a doctor, a psychiatrist. And I thought I've got great health insurance. Um, you know, I live in New York City, which is one of the most densely populated areas of psychiatrists in, in America. Um, it should be easy. Right. Um, but what I found was that it was uh, incredibly, incredibly difficult to find one. What, what, what was so difficult about it? I mean, to put it in context, there's only 45,000 psychiatrists in America. You know, 45% of them don't accept insurance and they're highly specialized. And so, you know, what happens is, and most of them work at either hospitals or, or private practice by themselves and they're, they're generally full. And so, you know, you email 20 people and whoever responds is the person you go and see. And there's a very high likelihood that that's not the right doctor for you, but there's even a higher likelihood that that doctor, that you're not the right patient for that doctor, right? Psychiatrists specialize in nuanced things, age ranges, demographics, you know, certain uh, treatment modalities, conditions, you know, there's a really a large, wide array of things that they specialize in. And so I did that. Only one person responded. They didn't accept insurance. I had to pay $400 out of pocket. Their office um, was one level below ground in this area in New York called Columbus Circle. You know it's underground because you have those really thin windows uh, at the top of the ceiling, right? Um, solid wood door, eight doorbells on the side of the wall with tape underneath each one and a doctor's name, you know, written in marker. Um, hit the button. I assume, you know, a buzzer goes off and, um, you know, nothing happened. And long story short, I didn't have any type of diagnosable mental illness or need medication, but I just thought, you know, I don't feel like I'm in, I'm in good hands at all. And it doesn't make sense, you know, why, why it's like this. So I, I really wanted to dig into it and find out. 
So then what happened? What happened next? Yeah. So, uh, you know, at the time, one of the sectors that I covered was healthcare. And so I was well aware of, of really large, successful, you know, uh, medical specialty practices um, in other areas of medicine, whether it's primary care, whether it's women's care, you know, urgent care, things like that. And I thought, you know, why has nobody really created this um, in the behavioral health space? And I really tried to understand, you know, well, why aren't, what, what's the most constrained resource in the entire space? Not what's the easiest to build or do. Just what's the most constrained resource? And, you know, the answer is it's not the number of therapists there are in the U.S., even though that, that's limited as well and, and an issue. It's not the number of nurses. It's not apps. It's not any of that stuff. The answer was the number of, of psychiatrists in the country. And I thought, okay, well, that's something that's, that's really what you, you've got to fix. And then you can build up from there. And I really just started to do research, just try to talk to doctors, you know, why, why, why don't you work in a group practice? Why do you work, you know, really two jobs? Most, most psychiatrists that I learned worked, you know, in hospital settings and then had their own private practice on Friday evenings or the weekends or something along those lines. It's like, why is that ideal? Is that what you want? Or are you forced to do that? And then, you know, you, you hear that, um, there's this fallacy that, People think insurance companies don't want to pay for behavioral health care. And I think that's that's not right at all. Um, and so I said, why, why is that the case? You know, there's got to be something that insurance companies are looking for that they're not getting currently. Because the math says that a patient who has a chronic physical condition, think high blood pressure, for example, nothing, nothing crazy, that's comorbid, so occurring at the same time as an untreated behavioral health condition, think depression, costs an insurer two to three times more a year to treat that patient. So if I'm an insurance company, I, I'm saying I want to I want to give everyone behavioral health care, you know, all day, right, to to save those costs. Um, so it 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 didn't pass the smell test. It didn't line up what people were saying and the 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 stigma associated with insurance and behavioral health care with the actual numbers from an insurance company. And um, so I said, there's a really big opportunity here. Um, and I think that the way you have to solve this problem is, and and this is what I firmly believe, and it's definitely different from how others have have created these types of 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 um, practices, which is we really believe that we have to first solve the problem for the provider. Number one, we have to be the best place for a psychiatrist and a behavioral health provider to work in America. Number two, we have to solve the problem for an insurance company. If we do those two things, it will then allow us to really successfully solve the problem for a patient at the end of the day. And if you did it in a reverse order, you would build something that that is um, really not scalable to a certain point, not strategic, and wouldn't really be able to fix the problem. You would have built something saying, how can I give this consumer um, the, whatever they want? If they want behavioral health to, to text, I want to give it to them. But that's not necessarily going to result in the highest quality outcomes. You might say they want the ability to message anybody they want anytime. You might say, I'm going to go in 1099 a bunch of providers to give them the most amount of access. Well, how are you going to then uh, focus on quality and allowing those providers to, to provide the most quality care, which allows you to move into value-based care, right? So it's like the decisions you make early on really affect what you can become at the end of the day. And can you really solve the, the problem rather than, than looking like you can solve the problem? Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So 
that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieverson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. So I guess for the people that are listening, then, what ended up being the business model of Talkitry? How do you guys make money? Yeah, so um, we employ behavioral health providers. So, you know, we employ, you know, uh, almost 350 psychiatrists, W2, um, across the country. Uh, we, we also employ um, therapists and, and other, other types of behavioral health providers as well, but predominantly um, psychiatrists. And... Uh, we contract na on a nationwide basis with every major health insurance company in the country. Um, so, you know, you're thinking of the Blues plans, you're thinking of Optum, Cigna, Aetna, you know, Humana, um, Medicare, all of those folks. Um, and uh, we get paid by them uh, for, for providing care to patients at the end of the day. So one, one of the things that I'd like to ask you here is you guys have raised a bit of money. How much money have you guys raised? Um, in equity, about $115 million to date. Okay. So how do you think about equity and debt, you know, for a company like this? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, I, I came from a debt background, so I'm very comfortable with it, you know, and, and even in this setting, it's kind of, uh, you know, I, I think that there's, there's, there's a lot of restrictions placed upon debt, you know, what you can and can't do. And I think that the more restrictions you have when you're still trying to grow and figure out the best way to do things, the, the, the worse off you are. And so we have great debt partners today. Uh, you know, all of our facilities are undrawn. They're, they're kind of really here for backup purposes, if you will. Um, and we have drawn them um, and use them. And they've been, they've been super helpful. I think as um, uh, companies get uh, more structured, standardized, you've got a much more reliable financial model, um, right? And it can be very volatile in the, in, the, in the early days. And so once it's smoother and more predictable, you can start to use and leverage debt in a, in a, in a, a much better way. And I'm certainly an advocate for that. But that, I would say, comes in kind of the Series C and later stages to, to really be comfortable doing it. There's still a lot of aversion to using debt um, for a venture-backed company. And then also for you guys, how has it been, you know, going through the, through the different rounds? It's tough, right? I mean, it's, you know, uh, it's not like, um, and the interesting thing is, I think COVID certainly helped from what we were doing. We, you know, we were working on this well before COVID. COVID certainly brought um, a focus on the space and, and behavioral health care and, you know, mental wellness and things like that. Um, so that definitely helped. But what I would say is that uh, our, our model, our practice model of employing physicians uh, wasn't it wasn't looked upon favorably back then. I think there was uh, a lot of um, individuals and and firms that were um, became very interested in behavioral health because of COVID, and they didn't necessarily have you know a, a well formed opinion on the space just yet. And so what happened is you know they invested in practices that ultimately you know didn't didn't really hit the mark right or are having issues today. Um, and you know I think that the 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 what people were looking for back then was 1099ing 
providers, you know, kind of treating them like Uber drivers, for example, right? And we didn't think that was good. Um, and so we went out and, and we our, our providers, you know, they cost a lot more. They're doctors, right? We employed them, which means we had to carry, you know, benefits and taxes and all of those additional things, right? Um, and, you know, generally speaking, you know, your expenses align really well with your income if you're using 1099, because if that provider is not working or generating, you know, um, uh, uh, generating any anything, then they're not they're not costing you anything. And on the W-2 side, it's totally the opposite. You've got to get this provider and work with them to get them utilized and have a full patient population panel, if you will. And you have to carry a lot of that while they're building it. And so I think that that business model, you know, it wasn't understood super well yet. It was understood from the standpoint of if you're really large and mature, but from a venture world, you know, that was not something that was viewed super highly. I think it's changed dramatically in the last few years. And now people are really understanding, you know, oh, we, we now we know what we're looking for. We know what works. Talkiatry, myself, my co-founder, we always knew what worked, but it, it takes a, a while for the market to, to get up to speed on that. And now we're seeing a lot, a lot of investors being, being much, much smarter and much more focused on the space, which is, which is great for us. So if we're talking about people, it sounds like uh, you guys brought senior executives really early. Now, yeah. How do you how how do you guys go about that? And then also, how should founders think about bringing senior people? Yeah, I mean, so so the backstory there is Talkiatry hired our chief operating officer and our chief technology officer, um, probably right just shy of the one year mark uh, from when we were operating, um, and I think it was just before we closed our Series A. So in early, you know, a large Series A. So in early kind of twenty twenty one, if you will, um, and our our Chief operating officer Josh Kermish was was previously at a really large physician group called Sound Physicians, and and you know he he's been you know um, managing large physician groups for you know north of two decades, if you will. Um, and then our chief technology officer joined at the same time, Jared Kamins, who you know was was basically at every you know major New York based um, you know healthcare technology company, if you will, from CityBlock to Remedy, you know. Um, uh, Zocdoc, right, and everything in between. So, so really well respected there. And I would argue that you know, Tokaiju was tiny. I mean, we were really small. We maybe were 20 people, 25 people, or something, or not even, right, on the corporate side. And so, you know, we didn't meet those, those folks. And I think I remember when Josh, when he flew in to interview here, he's, he 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 said, "I'm just not clear why you need me right now." You know, I was expecting this thing to be not running well, and that's why you needed an operations for. And my view was really saying. Um, I know that Talkiatry is going to be incredibly large. I know that we're going to be employing thousands of physicians, you know, in the future. And I want to build the base now. And I know that if I bring in senior executives, while it's going to be very costly and probably didn't make the right financial decision at that time to do that, right? It was definitely against what people would probably argue, given where we were financially. Um, I would argue that when you fast forward now, They've got this historical knowledge that that's just priceless in terms of why we did things early on, how we did them. And I would I would probably argue that both of them joined the company too early, to be totally honest. I would say that Talkiatry wasn't was like Talkiatry was not, not not beneath them necessarily, but um, it was too small. Like they, they didn't, they, you know, and so now now it's at a point where we grew into it. And I think that what people do a lot is the reverse. They'll bring in a senior leader for a certain phase of a company and then have to get a different one for the next phase of the company. And I think that the knowledge gap that you, you that you lose when you have that turnover is uh, infinitely more costly than investing in the right person up front. 
so that that's kind of the, the the kind of the thoughts, and it's worked out really well for me. It might not work well for everyone, depending on when you're raising and and can you finance those those types of things. But it worked worked really well for us, and so we have very low turnover. Basically, no one that I can think of off the top of my head on the C suite. And then in this case, also, how do you think about the ideas? You know, getting the best ideas from people in the organization, especially the senior guys. You know, how do you go about that? Yeah. So you got to listen to the whole part that I'm going to say. It's a two-parter, right? And if, if you if you just listen to the first part, it sounds really bad. But but I say it to everyone, and I I, I fully believe that this is the best way to do it. And I, I expect everyone to operate this way when they're talking to me as well, right? And so um, I believe that I am 100% right up until the moment I realize I'm wrong. So you can see why the second part is super important there, right? Um, and I think that you have to have that level of diligence and confidence in, in what you're saying to truly believe that you're, I've done all, all the work here. I've done all the research. I believe I'm 100% right. But you have to maintain the possibility that you're wrong and keep an open mind that someone else might be right, right? And the goal of that conversation is really you should both come out with one idea that is the best idea. And it doesn't matter whose it is at the end of the day because you know, you're fighting for it because you believe you're 100% right, but you also believe. And a lot of times it's how you say things. You could say the same thing five different times and on the fifth time, you get it. And you're like, oh, I get it now. You're right. I'm wrong. Totally makes sense. Let's go and do that. And you know, if you have that mindset and you let people know up front that that's how it's going to be, and you expect pushback um, and you encourage pushback, right? Um, then I think you'll get the best ideas. And you know, we'll have people who you know pull me off to the side and, and kind of say like, "Hey, you know, Robert, I, I think I think you're really wrong here, man. No offense, I just think you're totally fundamentally wrong." And I was like, "Great, tell me why." Like, I, I'm interested. You, you know what I mean? It's never, oh, you know, pulling rank. That doesn't exist, right? And it's and so I think that that's the best way to get some of the best ideas. Um, you encourage people to create them and, and uh, push back when you, you know, when you think something should be done and not just blindly follow. So then let's talk about vision then, because obviously to onboard, you know, all these people and, and also the investors, you know, vision, I'm sure it was a critical one. So imagine you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake yep. up in a world, Robert, where the mission of Talkitry is fully realized. I mean, that vision that you, you know, share with everyone, what would that world look like? Yeah, well, that would be a, a fun time. Um, I think that there would be, you know, a seamless integration between physical and mental health. And I think there's a really big difference between those today, whether it's who's paying for the care, whether it's how you seek the care, you know, whether it's reimbursed or not, uh, whether it's even accessible, right? Physical healthcare is a lot more accessible, still has issues, but I think you end up in a world where um, there is, there's really no stigma or separation between the two. And I think you end up in a world where no matter what type of behavioral healthcare that you need, it's accessible and you know where to go to get it. And I think that's one of the biggest issues today where you might know you need help, but you have no idea what level of care or where to go. Um, and you would look at Talkiatry and say, listen, they might not be the right place for me, but I trust their opinion. And I'm going to go and ask them and they're going to help me get to the right place, whether we, we, whether we provide the care or we direct them to the right level of care. And so I think, you know, that, that's a world that's really interesting. I, I also think that, you know, uh, mental health care in that, in that future um, is really a value-based environment. And, and to give you the background for, for those that might not be super involved in healthcare, right? For for, for some listener, listeners, I think that, um, you know, right now there's this big concept of fee-for-service, which is you see a doctor, the doctor gets paid for seeing you, right? does not matter if you get better or don't get better. The doctor got paid for seeing patients. And so, you know, I think that um, 
in an incorrect way, sometimes it can incentivize, you know, uh, things that aren't related to outcomes. How many patients have we seen today, right? And so when corporations get into healthcare, they're looking at these things and, and they start to push for incentives that don't align. And the patient's incentives don't align with the doctor's incentives, don't align with the insurer's incentives, don't, doesn't align with the, the practice's incentives. And I think when you look at value-based care, that's really aligning everybody saying every single person in this equation wants the patient to get better faster. If the patient, the patient obviously is much happier, right? If they get better, the insurance company pays less if the patient got better. Um, the doctor, of course, wants their patients to get better. That's how they view success, right? Um, and that the compensation for getting that patient better um, is, is really driven by that, for example, and not just how many patients you saw today. And so I think that's a very difficult thing to do. There's no blood test for depression. So how are you proving outcomes? That's something that Talkiatry has been working on since day one. And we believe, you know, driving that change and moving to a value-based environment for mental health care. And so I think that that's, that's what the vision looks like. It's a big one, but I, I think it's, it's, it's entirely possible. So I guess uh, we're talking about the future, you know, and I want to talk about the past, but doing so with a lens of reflection. Imagine I bring you back in time, you know, to that moment where you are, I guess, you know, at that moment, you know, where you were dealing with all this situation uh, that happened in your apartment and Let's say now you finally, it sounds like you, you got the idea, you're starting to look into it. Let's say I give you the opportunity of whispering to your younger self at that point where you were like in the ideation you know, mode and you're able to give one piece of advice to that younger Robert, one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why given what you know now? Um. Yeah, that's a that's a tough one. I'm sure a lot of people, you know, who who you speak with here, you know, find it difficult to do that because of where we are today, right? So so everything's gone. I wouldn't wouldn't change much. But one thing I would go back and tell myself is, um, you know, um, stay committed to your vision. You know, don't don't get bothered by the noise, um, and just stay steadfast. And whether that's and that applies with a lot of things, whether it's a business model, whether it's speaking to investors, for example, right? And I think if I didn't follow my own advice, you might end up with something that doesn't look like talkiatry, right? You might end up with something that is not where we are today. And so um, I think that nobody knows um, your, your, your business or your journey better than yourself. Um, and you'll have more people that doubt it than, than that agree with it. And so I think that, that it's really important that you just stay very focused and very steadfast on um, you know, what you want to do and executing that. And then if you fail, you only have one person to blame, you know, yourself um, versus, versus listening to others' advice. I love it. So, Robert, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, connecting with me on LinkedIn uh, is always great, um, for sure. Um, and I post a lot about what Talkiatry's done and things like that. Um, but also, you know, via email, you know, robert.crane at talkiatry.com. I mean, I'm a, I'm a really accessible person, you know, um, and so we'll love, love to talk to folks about the space or just about, you know, journeys, give advice if I have it, you know, or hear advice, you know, someone might be listening saying I've done this before. I got to give them this. It's like, I'd love to hear it. You know, I'm very humble from that standpoint. I love it. Well, Hey, you see, you know, so Robert, thank you so much for being on the dealmaker show today. It has been an absolute honor to have you with us. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been really fun. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. 
You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.